So, imagine for a minute that you're one of the first Christians in the world. Let's say you're living in Damascus, not because you necessarily want to, but because you've had to leave your home in Jerusalem due to the persecution that's arisen first following the murder of Stephen and then by Herod Agrippa. Your Bible is the 39 books of what we call the Old Testament. Then they were simply the scriptures. This is the setting for the book of James. It's the earliest document in the New Testament canon, having been written, it's believed, sometime between 44 and 49 A.D. This morning, I'd like to begin looking at this with you, so please turn to James 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The book is actually a letter, beginning, as all letters do, with a salutation. As was the custom at the time, the salutation included the identity of the writer, the name, and named its intended recipients. It opens simply, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes were dispersed abroad. Greetings. And the first question you have to ask is James? James who? Who is this guy? That's a good question. As an early Christian, you would almost certainly know. We can infer from the way the salutation is written that this James was well known to his intended audience. But a lot of time has passed, and there's actually quite a bit of discussion around the question, James who? with the possibilities ranging from James, a half-brother of Jesus, to some person whose name is unknown who adopted the name James for the purpose of writing the letter. However, when the dust is settled, we must conclude that when James identifies himself as James, it's because that's his true name. So which of the Jameses mentioned in the Bible is it? There are four, two of which could be eliminated immediately. James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, is mentioned only twice in the scripture and only in connection with this Judas. The second James has been eliminated as James the Apostle, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less, who's also mentioned a couple of times in the scripture. That leaves only James, the brother of John, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. But James, the brother of John, is the second martyr named in the scripture and was put to death too early to have written the letter. So that leaves only James, a half-brother of Jesus. But who cares? It would certainly be of interest to the scholars who seem to engage in endless debate about the minutest details of literally everything. But what about the rest of us? What difference does it make to you or to me who wrote the letter? I mean, it's all good stuff. Why do we care about the identity of the author? Well, first, it's important to resolve that the letter wasn't written by some anonymous person who had adopted a pen name. After all, the letter has been adopted into canon as the very word of God, inspired by his Holy Spirit for the teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. But in addition to this, I think we can also learn a good deal as we consider that this document was indeed authored by Jesus' younger half-brother. 
We know from the scriptures that Jesus' brothers initially rejected him as Messiah. And initially, we might wonder at that. How could James and his brothers not see that they were growing up with someone who was indeed the anointed one? But think about it from their perspective. How hard it must have been growing up in the same household with Jesus. First, there's a normal, everyday sibling rivalry thing. Jesus was the firstborn, setting him up as a target from those who came behind him. But it gets worse. God's word tells us that Jesus never sinned. As much as his little brothers and sisters teased and antagonized him, he never responded in a sinful manner. If you have brothers or sisters, you must know how frustrating this might have been. When they got into trouble at home or at school, how hard it must have been to be reprimanded with, what's wrong with you? We never have this trouble with your older brother. As he grew up with, as, with James and his other siblings, Jesus set the bar at an impossible level. And what resentment that must have engendered in them. Then as he got older and began his public ministry, it just got worse. He got famous, and they had to live in the shadow cast by his brilliance. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, that while he was speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my brother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know, we rejoice in this truth. We're made brothers and sisters with the very Son of God by his mercy. But put yourself in their place. How hard it must have seemed to his family to stand on the outskirts of the crowd learning that their natural relationship could not give them special access to special privilege with Jesus. Access to him is based on obedience and submission to the will of God by his grace and on no other basis. This must have just burned in the hearts of James and his brothers and sisters. How they must have resented, maybe even hated him at this point. There's something else that bears observing here. No one, not James, his brothers, his sisters, not Mary, and certainly not you nor I, can come to Jesus because of family connections. If anyone could have done so, it would have been his blood relatives. But every person who comes to Jesus, including James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and Mary, comes to him on his terms and not ours. It's been said often and truly that God has no grandchildren. God's word tells us that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There's something else here. Contemplating that James, the half-brother of Jesus, gives us another perspective on our Lord. Almost no one knows us better than the people we grow up with. My brothers know me. If I were so foolish as to try to convince you or anybody else that I'm without sin, they would be right at the head of a very long line of people who could testify to the fact that I'm a terrible sinner. But God's word tells us that Jesus never sinned. He lived an absolutely blameless life. If this were not true, James would have known. And had he known such a thing, I think it extremely unlikely 
that he would have become a leader in the church and ultimately a martyr for the cause of Christ. But he did. And that's further evidence of the fact that Jesus was truly without sin. So this is the writer of the epistle of James, the half-brother of Jesus. It would have helped us a bit, maybe, if he just said so. I mean, when I write a letter, when I make a phone call, I almost always sign my full name or introduce myself as Dave Ricks. Not just Dave, but then there are occasions when I don't. My family, my friends, my immediate co-workers and close associates would think it's strange and unnecessarily formal if I signed every note and began every phone call with my full name. To them, to you, I'm just Dave. More isn't necessary or even desirable. Maybe that's the case here. As I said earlier, perhaps James was so well known that it wasn't necessary for, for him to identify himself further. Maybe it was just understood that a letter from James pertaining to holy living would necessarily be from James, a half-brother of Jesus, and a leader in the church at Jerusalem. Or maybe he didn't want to seem puffed up by claiming notoriety based on his standing as a sibling of Jesus. Some commentators have proposed this reason for the sketchy identification, but I think not. Instead, look how he does introduce himself. Not as James, the son of Joseph, not as James, the brother of Jesus, nor as James, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Not of any of these things, but rather as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really easy to just read over this to get to the meat of the letter. But the introduction is much more than a throwaway phrase, and I think it bears consideration to see what is there for us. James first introduces himself as a bondservant of God. Actually, the translation has a cultural connotation or content that we need to deal with. The actual term is slave, not servant. I make the distinction because it seems important to me that we get the actual true impact of what's being said here so that we might see its application in our own lives. The word used here in the original Greek is doulos, and it refers to a slave, to one who must completely give up his own autonomy and subordinate his will to that of another. A slave is the property of the one he serves, and because of this, the Greeks felt only revulsion and contempt for the position of a slave. Truth be told, so do we. We may also feel compassion for the slave, but as natural men, not one of us is interested in applying for such a position. And I think that's why the term has, in many translations, been softened to servant rather than slave. But the truth is, is that James was saying he was God's property, his slave. He no longer claimed any independent will of his own, but completely subordinated himself to God. In his statement at the outset of the letter, he affirms the truth that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, that each believer's proper role is wholehearted to service to God, to the God who saved them, who ransomed them with the blood of his own son. But there's another cultural component here as well. Because down through the ages in most societies, slaves are slaves, not by choice, but by compulsion. This was not to be the case for the Jews. God had allowed for the fact that a Jew might sell himself into slavery to another because of financial difficulties. But that situation was to be only temporary. 
One Jew could not purchase another permanently. Instead, the maximum period of servitude was to be six years, after which the one who had sold himself into slavery was to go free. It's important to observe that every aspect of this servitude was voluntary on the slave's part. No Hebrew could legally compel another to become a slave, nor could one refuse to let another go at the end of the period for the servitude that had been specified by God. But God allowed for the fact that during that period of his servitude, a man might decide that he liked the arrangement and might wish to make it permanent. In that case, the master would take the servant to the doorway, put the slave's earlobe against the doorpost, and drive an awl through it as an indication that the servant had become a permanent part of his household. What a picture. Think of the power of this illustration. The process is detailed in Exodus chapter 21, verse 5. And I don't know how many times I've read over it without thinking really of the power of what's being described. Here you have a man who came to serve another out of necessity. All of his options have been exhausted. And he must finally, in order to live, place himself into indentured servitude for up to six years. At the outset of the time, he might mark his calendar and count the days to the day that he would go free. But over time, maybe he's fine that he likes his situation. So much so that at the end of the time, he says, nail me to the woodwork of the house. You can't drag me out of here. That's how James identified himself as a man who had voluntarily placed himself into permanent submission of absolute servitude to God. But James not only identifies himself as a bondservant of God, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I've read over this for years and years, never given it much thought. I, and maybe you as well, have heard the term Lord Jesus Christ so many times that it actually seems like one word. But think of what's being said here. First, the name Jesus originates from the Old Testament name Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. It spoke of God's intent, his promise that he would one day send a redeemer so that men might be saved from their sin. Those who bore that name would be a continual reminder that there was hope for mankind, that God had a plan for us. There were many people who had borne that name over the years, but James is speaking of a particular Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the son of Mary. To ascribe the term Christ to any man had huge import. To call Jesus Christ was to acknowledge him as Messiah, the very Son of God. For us, seeing this from this side of the cross and having been conditioned of, by hearing perhaps of Jesus Christ from our earliest days, this seems to hardly bear comment. It's like, we know this was a problem. But for a Jew, then and now, this is a very big deal. It offends Jews greatly now to refer to Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. It offended them then. It's recorded in John's Gospel that the Jews asked Jesus if he was the, if he was the Christ. When he answered the affirmative, they sought to stone him. And finally, when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin, he affirmed that he was indeed the Messiah. The Son of God. That assertion is what got Jesus crucified. It's what got Stephen stoned, and ultimately it got James and countless others down through the ages killed as well. 
No Jew would say such a thing lightly. Yet James says it here. These two descriptions of the man, Jesus and Christ, speak of his import to mankind. His name speaks of God's plan to save a people to himself. And the designation Christ speaks of the fact that he is the one through whom the whole world must come to God. But finally, James makes it personal. He calls Jesus Christ his Lord. The word James used here is kurios. In the classical Greek, it designated an owner or a ruler. It always stood for one with legal power and authority. In the Septuagint, the term was used to translate the name which we pronounce Yahweh, the memorial name that God had given for himself. In the New Testament, we see the term used both ways, to designate a ruler and as a name for God. So James is at the least saying that Jesus is his absolute master, his owner. A minimal reading of the word would designate that. But given in combination with the rest of his salutation, James is also asserting Jesus' deity. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. Yet James here has described himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's clearly giving testimony of the fact of Jesus' divinity, and he's not the first. Remember what Thomas said when Jesus appeared to him following his resurrection? When Jesus invited him to put his finger into the imprint of the nails in his hands, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. This, by the way, gives rise to an interesting point. James is, by implication, giving testimony to Jesus' resurrection. He says here that Jesus is his Lord, his master, but Jesus had been killed. Many then and now have said that that was the end of Jesus. The story of his resurrection was a lie, a myth, to be perpetuated by his followers and not to be believed by educated people. But all human relationships end at death. Yet James, a man who was, as we can see from the way in which his letter was written, an, ed an intelligent, educated man, he asserts that this Jesus is his master, the one to whom he has given his service, his life. James is clearly believed that Jesus had risen from the dead and is living still. So having observed all this, we have a better perspective on why James introduced himself as he did. His entire focus from the introduction of the letter to the end is not on natural relationships, but on the relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. As we've often said here, James is clearly testifying, it's not about me, but about Jesus, my Lord and my God. But wait a minute. Earlier I pointed out that James was not always a disciple of Jesus. Remember? In John 7, Jesus' brothers, including James, were seen to be in opposition to him. They were unbelievers. Now James describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus, the one he names as the Christ. He'd become a leader in the Christian church at Jerusalem, one to whom other Christians look for guidance. What happened? How could this change take place? Well, the scripture may tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that there that Jesus, following his resurrection, appeared to James and then to all the apostles and finally to Paul. The commentaries that I've read indicate that the James mentioned here may have been James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the author of this letter. I think it's significant that this passage is the one in which Paul describes his own conversion experience when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. 
Paul may be, in addition to describing the occasion on which he was converted from being an antagonist of the church and an opponent of Jesus, to being a great proponent of the gospel, in addition to his own conversion experience, he may also be describing the means by which James was converted. The risen Christ appeared to both men specifically, and they were saved. This points up one of the great principles of the Christian faith. And I think one we can infer from the, James, the epistle of James. No one ever comes to Christ by accident. Each one is called specifically. And everyone who is called comes. Just as Jesus sought and saved James specifically, so he sought and saved you and me. Simply put, that's what happened to James. He had a saving encounter with the risen Christ. So this is the James that wrote the letter. Actually, there's one more thing. We can know about James from his letter, but I'll get to it in a minute. For now, having observed a good deal about the author of the letter, we need to ask next, who are the intended recipients, the addressees? The salutation simply says to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. From this we know at a minimum that James was addressing his letter to Jews who were living outside of Palestine as a result of the various deportations that occurred throughout the history of the Jews. Following the various deportations, many Jews never returned to Palestine, but established communities and cities throughout the inhabited world. But unlike other people who have immigrated to foreign lands, they were never assimilated into the population of those lands, but remained distinct and formed their own social and geographic communities within the larger communities where they lived. They were received with varying degrees of acceptance, but they have always remained a separate, distinct people in the community. However, we know further from the contents of the letter, especially chapter 2, verse 1, where James makes reference to the reader's faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, that he's addressing not just Jews, but Christian Jews. It's actually a key point to understand since it speaks to the context of the letter. We must understand and identify with the situation of James' intended recipients for to understand the meaning of what he says in his letter. James was writing to those who were strangers among strangers. Outcasts driven from their homes as a result of the persecutions against the church that began with the stoning of Stephen. So think about the levels of isolation experienced by these people. First, they were Jews. Their dress, mannerism, mode of speech, and heritage set them apart from the community in which at large. As Jews, they were culturally distinct and would always be strangers wherever they might go. But these were not just strangers among the Gentiles, but they were strangers within the Jewish community as well. It's always difficult moving into a new community. And it was no different from these people. They were, by definition, the new folks in town. And they faced all the difficulties that any new stranger faces moving into a new community. Add to that another point of separation that one commentator I read pointed out. He indicated that the Jewish communities within the dispersion had become fairly cosmopolitan, consisting primarily of traders. <clears throat> In short, they were, for the most part, city folk. Palestinian Jews, on the other hand, tended to be peasants or artisans. So, if this commentator is correct, these folks weren't just the new Jews in town. They may have been seen as country bumpkins as well. But finally, we come to the most difficult part. They were Christians. Consequently, they faced a fourth and most difficult degree of separation, that of being outcast from their own people. 
they were actually actively opposed by the very community from whom they would normally expect to receive support. This would mean that they couldn't do business, get a job, or maybe even, even easily obtain things they needed at market. In short, life was very difficult for these people to the degree that we can hardly appreciate. And that's the context for the letter, which James begins with an admonition. He says, greetings, considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I said earlier that we could see another thing about James from this letter. We see it throughout the letter, but it begins here. Simply put, James had a pastor's heart, a burden for his people. As he writes, he writes with authority. There's no equivocation found within the letter. The instructions and admonitions are firm to the extent that they may seem to some to even be harsh. But there's tenderness as well. Look how he addresses his people. He calls them my brethren. You know, this is one of the most frequent terms found within the letter, being used 15 times in the span of this short letter. He speaks of brethren four times, my brethren eight times, my beloved brethren three times. The only term I found used more often was faith, being used 25 times. James is writing this letter to people in difficult circumstances in order to deal with some very difficult issues. Like any admonition, there can be a sting. And it's like James is appealing to these people to remember that he's addressing them as their older brother, as one who loves them greatly. The word translated here as brethren is adelphos. In its original meaning and in the Old and New Testaments, it's used primarily to speak of a physical sibling relationship. It's also used in the New Testament to speak of the relationship we have in Christ, in that we are all indwelt by his Holy Spirit. James uses it here, I think, to emphasize the bond we have in Christ. The sibling relationship is the closest natural relationship that exists. It designates those who inhabited and came forth from the same womb. We now know that siblings can be seen to be such by the very DNA, the building blocks of their bodies. Siblings are related to one another from the very core of their being. The idea of brotherhood is one of three expressions of relationship that's been applied to the Church of Christ. The others, that we are the bride of Christ, speaking of our relationship to him, and the body of Christ, speaking of our interdependence on each other in service to Christ, also speak of an incredibly close relationship Christians have with one another. But this term, Adelphos, brother, was used in this letter to point up their and our solidarity with James and with one another. These people were in incredibly dire straits. They were absolutely isolated in the world. They had almost certainly been disowned by their families. They had been driven out of their homes, probably leaving with only what they could carry on their backs. They were new in town with no jobs, no network, probably little money, staying in very close, uncomfortable quarters. They were under tremendous pressure. In this context, James reminds him 15 times that we're family. Why would he put so much emphasis on the relationship? Well, I think for two reasons. First, as I've already said, I think he did so to remind the readers in the course of very stern admonition of his love for them. He addressed them as brothers, my brothers, my dear brothers. This always gets me. I don't know why. He says, I'm telling you these things because you're on my heart. I love you. 
and only desire what's good for you. The truth, when it's applied to our own lives rather than contemplated in the abstract, is often very hard to hear. As I think of the times when the light of God's word, either being proclaimed from the pulpit or an individual conversation, has revealed some flaw in my behavior and attitude in my heart that needs addressing, my first reaction is often to become defensive. It's almost automatic. This tendency is first to justify, rationalize, or deny the deficiency, and then to become indignant with the one proclaiming the truth. It's true of me. It's probably true of you. And I think James was anticipating their action when he wrote the letter. So he reminds them again and again that he's writing to them as their brother in the Lord who loves them and only desires God's blessing in their lives. But he's not only speaking to remind the readers of their filial relationship with himself, but with each other as well. The term brothers is used again and again to keep their relationship with each other continually before them. As he warns them against anger, selfishness, favoritism, and greed, he's telling them over and over, we're family. Act like it. There's a chorus that we used to sing. It says, we are one in the spirit, we're one in the Lord. And it goes on to say, and they'll know we're Christians by our love. What a sweet idea. The emotion it brings up can drive us to tears at times. But too often, we sing these kinds of songs. We enjoy the emotional warmth brought about by the consideration of the concept. And then go on with our lives without any true impact on our behavior. James is telling them here, that there is so much more to this relationship than a warm feeling in our hearts. The love we have for our brothers must drive behavior. It's important to know that this loving behavior is not optional. Jesus said, first, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He also said, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Unless there be any confusion, any tendency to reduce this command to an encouragement to simply feel warmly about each other, Jesus pointed out that the entire law was based in the command that we are to love God and our neighbor. You know, I've found over the course of my life that it's relatively easy for me to behave in a loving, considerate, accommodating manner when things are going well. For example, I've said many times, I'll say again, because it's true, I love Patty like my life. And on the good days... When things are going my way, it's relatively easy for me to behave in a loving manner. But on the days when sleep has been short the night before, when I've had a stressful day at work, then the old sinful, selfish, petty, sarcastic Dave comes out. I find too often that by the time I get home, the nice has all been used up at work, and all that's left for the one I love is the mean. Now, this is more than just a word of confession. It's an illustration of the truth in all of our lives that James is addressing in this letter. It requires great care and dependence on the grace of God so that we might behave in a loving manner toward those around us when we're under pressure, when the heat's on. And the heat was on for these recipients of James's letters. I pointed out earlier the occasion for the letter was to address refugees, people who had been driven from their homes into a difficult and foreign situation with a fierce persecution. You know, our normal expectation of one writing to people in such dire straits would be that there would be words of sympathy, of consolation. 
That's not what we have here in James. He opens his salutation with the word greetings. If we read it in English, we miss the total impact. But the word in Greek is the infinitive of the word chiro, which means rejoice. It's a cheerful greeting. Used by itself, it might be seen to be only that, just a simple standard greeting. But following this greeting, James goes on to say that they are to consider it all joy when they encounter these various trials. What an amazing statement for this guy to make. On the surface, it seems so insensitive. It would be easy to read this as a call to a positive mental attitude. You know, it's like the old song, let a smile be your umbrella on a rainy, rainy day. We hear that sort of thing a lot, it seems. Empty platitudes spoken with great insensitivity by those who have no idea or interest in the deep distress of the one being addressed. But that's definitely not what we have here. James is not writing to them to give them superficial words of sympathy. Instead, he's telling them that God has involved them in a process resulting in a product for a purpose. He first writes that the means of this process is trials. The word for trials used here can mean either affliction or temptation to sin. The same word is used for temptation in the Lord's Prayer when it says, lead us not into, into temptation. And James first tells his readers that they and we are to recognize that trials are inevitable. He says that we are to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, not if. As human beings living in a sin-corrupted world, our normal state is one of trouble. This is our heritage, our lot as sons of Adam. Not only are these troubles inevitable, they will, James tells us, occur unexpectedly. He says that we will encounter various trials. The word for encounter means to fall into. It's a word that's related to hunting, and the picture is, is one of someone falling into a snare or a trap. It's used two other places in the New Testament. In Acts 27:41, it's used to describe the wreck of the ship that was taking Paul to Rome. And Luke chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus spoke of the man who fell among thieves. These troubles come suddenly, and they have great potential for causing disaster. And finally, James speaks of various trials. The word for various was used in the Septuagint to translate the word for variegated or many-colored. What a powerful picture. As many colors as there are in the rainbow, such is the trouble we can expect as believers. The picture that comes most vividly to my mind as I contemplated what's being described here is the account of the assault on Job. In that account, we see messengers coming to Job one right after the other to tell him of yet another disaster that's occurred in his life. They came again and again. It says of the messengers, and while he was still speaking, another came. These guys were lined up to tell Job of his troubles. And that's what we have here. The troubles that were brought to bear against these Christians were disastrous, disheartening, and seemingly endless. In the face of these troubles, James tells his readers to consider it all joy. What a thing to say. The word for joy is, is used to describe something that's a cause for gladness, for rejoicing. It's important to note that James, when he says it to count it all joy, he's not saying that these troubles or trials are in and of themselves joyful. You see, for those who don't know God, 
Trouble is simply that, an outworking or fruit of the sin that has infected every aspect of life on the planet. For those who don't know God, the best they can do is try to get through trouble, wait for a better day, and in the meantime to make the best of a bad situation. But the children of God are to consider these trials as joy, not because they are good in and of themselves, but because of what God is using them to produce. The word for consider in the Greek means literally to lead out before. And what James is saying here is that these Christians who are experiencing these deep troubles, as a result of their allegiance to Christ, are to take control of their minds. They are to regard with joy that which is not of itself a cause for gladness. They are to regard it as such not because it's good in and of itself, not because they're just making the best of a bad situation. Instead, Christians must regard troubles in the context of an incredible truth that's applicable only to the redeemed. We rejoice in the face of trouble because we know that God uses the testing or proof of our faith to bring about in us a good product, endurance. The concept being presented here by use of the participle knowing and the verb produces, both are in the present tense, indicating a continuing asset, excuse me, continuing action or process. The word for knowing is gnosko, which means to have personal knowledge, to apprehend through personal experience. The word for produces is a compound word, meaning to work down. So we're being told here that we are in the process of gaining personal knowledge through continuing experience, the testing or proving our faith is bringing about endurance. I think it's a key aspect to the endurance building process. Every time we experience difficulty and see God bring us through victorious, our ability to trust him, to keep us through these trials, grows stronger yet. Now, there's something to note here in passing. The testing spoken of here is not of we ourselves, but of our faith. This is important because we ourselves can do nothing. But, rather, but our faith is not of ourselves. Rather, it's a gift from God. God's gifts are good. They're perfect. James is telling us here that God allows trials to come into our lives to prove the faith he has given us to be pure or genuine. It's relevant that the word James uses use for testing here is not the same one that he used when he spoke of trials. That word, I'll try to say it right, is periasmos. And as we've observed, it can mean either a trial or a temptation of the individual. But the word used here is dokimion. It's a word used to describe the criterion by which something is proved as genuine. It was used to speak of proving gold coinage to be genuine. You probably know that when gold coins were made of pure, unalloyed gold, one way to prove the genuineness of the coin was to bite it or to put it under pressure. If the, if the pressure exerted on the coin left a mark, it was known to be pure gold. You may have heard of the acid test. This refers to another means of determining the purity of a gold article. In this case, a drop of, drop of nitric acid is placed on the article to be tested. If the article remains unaffected, it's pure. If the acid turns a color, that indicates that something in the article has been dissolved by the acid and that the article isn't pure gold. So we see that James is telling us here that the trials that God has allowed into our lives will not destroy us, but will rather prove the faith that he has given us. They will bring about endurance. 
The word translated here as endurance is hupomini. I said it wrong. I can spell it for you. It refers to the ability to bear up under a burden. It's also been translated in the scripture as perseverance. Another synonym might be steadfastness. The endurance that results from an approving of our faith is not merely a passive, stoic bearing of difficulties. Rather, it's the quality that allows us to actively hold our ground, to refuse to yield under pressure. It's a quality we exhibit when we adopt a position we know from God's word to be right and absolutely refuse to change no matter what the cost. The picture I get is of brave soldiers who've succeeded in achieving a strategic position. But in having achieved it, they find themselves separated from the main body of their unit. They find themselves in a seemingly untenable position, but they bravely refuse to retreat. They may feel themselves to be in danger of being surrounded, cut off, and overrun, but they stand in hope of being <clears throat> reinforced and relieved. But until then, they stand, preferring to die if need be than to yield, because they understand the strategic importance of the position that they have achieved. The church in America needs more Christians, more fellowships like that. We need people who know God's word and knowing it, refuse to retreat from what we know to be right. We need to be people who are willing to say, I know this to be true, and in the light of that knowledge, this is how I will live my life. I will not change. I will not deviate. I will not give in, no matter what the cost. That's the word, what the word endurance signifies, and it comes about only through the testing of our faith. It comes about only through trials. Well, I've gotten ahead of myself and slipped over an application, but it's really appropriate at this point. It's vital that as we read this oldest of the New Testament documents, that we approach it not as an academic exercise, but as it is, God's word given so that we might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's essential that we apply what we see here to evaluate our own lives and, depending on God's grace, endeavor to live lives more in keeping with the calling to which we've been called. As, it's study, as we read and study it, it's essential to ask, how do I identify myself? What's the top priority of my life? Do we recognize ourselves to be bond servants, sold out to God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we say with the psalmist, one thing I've asked from the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in its temple. The truth of the matter is that each of us who have truly come into a relationship with God through the cross are indeed bond servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's word tells us you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The only question that remains is what kind of bond servants are we? As the word indicates here, we are to be those who live in such a way as to glorify God. Excuse me. You know, it's a very easy thing to say on a beautiful Sunday morning in the comfort of these surroundings in the, com in the company of our brothers and sisters. It's another thing entirely when trouble comes. We've seen this to be true 
uh, we've known some difficulty, and it's safe to anticipate that we will probably continue to be under pressure, both individually and corporately. In these circumstances, it can be difficult to keep this understanding of our relationship with each other in Christ continually before our eyes. But God allows these tests, which in and of themselves are not good, as a part of a process designed, according to Romans 8, to conform us to the image of his Son and to produce in us the ability to stand for him and the truth of his word. A few minutes ago, I used a military analogy to illustrate a point, and it seems appropriate to return there for a minute. It's occurred to me that right now, at this very minute, there are men in training for combat. They're running up hot, dry hills, carrying heavy loads, are doing endless exercises, are engaging in other activities that cause intense difficulty and pain. Very few of them are grateful for what they're enduring now. Very few are counting it joy. But they will be thankful in the day the shooting starts. In that day, the pain they are experiencing today will stand them in good stead. They will be able to keep their heads under fire and to accomplish their mission under conditions that would confound the uninitiated. Not only that, but every conflict or skirmish they pass through further hones their skills so that having been trained in difficulty and tested under fire, they ultimately become truly formidable in the service to which they've been called. So it is with us. We who are the bondservants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ are called to a glorious eternity in the presence, very presence of God. But that time is not yet. Between us and God's ultimate objective for us is a battle, the details of which we don't know. We don't know how long it will be. We don't know the course it will take. We do know it will be fierce because God's word tells us that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our adversary will continue to bring pressure to bear against us. The heat is on, and we can anticipate that it may well intensify. As we feel the heat, it would be easy We'll be tempted to sin in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our words, in our action. It'd be very easy to slip into greed, lust, idolatry, and anger. In those times of difficulty, we must remember, first, that we're only sojourners here. We're not home yet, but we're foreigners in this land, whom God has sent into the world to accomplish an objective, the proclamation of his gospel. Second, as foreigners here, trouble and opposition testing will be our lot. We must remember that God allows this testing and troubles to prove the faith that he has given us. Through each trial, which our enemy would use to destroy us, our endurance by God's grace grows greater still. We must remember that he is is building endurance in us so that we can resist our adversary, firm in our faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by our brethren who are in the world. After we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, how we thank you. How we thank you for the inheritance that's ours. How we thank you for the cross. How we thank you for the fact that you never leave us alone. That you use every trial, you use every trouble. You use everything to your glory and for our good. Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here this morning that you will keep this continually before our eyes as we pass through this world. That you'd enable us to see that you are using these things so that we will be better servants of yours. So that your word will be proclaimed truly and lived out before the eyes of a world who doesn't know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.